Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So when you were a kid, were you told that you couldn't drink coffee because it was bad for kids? I mean, not specifically by my parents, but I do remember people saying that. So there was a great piece in The Atlantic a few years ago about how this story spread. And it was all thanks to none other than that serial tycoon, C.W. Post. It turns out that even before his days of creating all those delicious breakfast foods like grape nuts and whatever, like Post was selling this caffeine-free coffee substitute called Postum, and apparently it was cereal-based. Postum. So this was a cereal-based coffee substitute that you—did you actually drink it? Uh Uh-huh. That sounds gross. Yeah, I mean, it sounds disgusting, but it actually found a pretty big audience— Largely because Post marketed the heck out of it. And you should see the ads. They are bonkers. Like, they only (laughs) focus somewhat on how good Postum is. And instead, mainly they try to scare people by talking about how terrible the effects of coffee are on kids. So in one ad for Postum cereal from the 1930s, we're told that coffee robs children of their rosy cheeks and sparkling eyes. It lowers (laughs) their vitality, lessens their resistance to disease, and hampers proper development and growth. Well, I mean, I guess it's okay if it lessens their resistance to disease, but losing their rosy cheeks and their sparkling eyes like that is unacceptable. I know. And and even worse, Post cited some world-famous research institute, right? There's no mention of what this institute is, but it says that <laughs> they found that coffee caused kids to get bad grades in school. But I think my favorite part of the marketing plan by Post was this creation of a comic strip character who was named Mr. Coffee Nerves. Okay, at this point, Mango, you're just, you're making this up, be honest. (laughs) I mean, I wish I were, but Mr. Coffee Nerds was always causing problems and making people all restless and sick and even causing kids to run away from home. But (laughs) (laughs) but fortunately, the stories would always end on a happy note with the victims, you know, making the very wise decision to switch to post them. Oh, well, thank goodness. But, But really, I mean, you can see how even if all of this was a bunch of baloney, how that that idea that drinking that much coffee, being that unhealthy and all of that kind of stuff, you can see how this might stick around, actually. Yeah, and, and we'll discuss all of that today. I mean, it's far from the only time in history that people went to great lengths to keep people from drinking coffee. But, of course, you know, we live in a coffee-obsessed world. So you and I wanted to know how this all got started. What countries are the biggest drinkers? And what did the studies say about the connection between coffee and our health? So that's what we'll be looking at today. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, preparing to take his very first sip of Palm Civet Coffee, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, this is a big day for Tristan because he's been waiting for weeks (laughs) to try this stuff. And of course, Palm Civet Coffee can be tough to get your hands on, especially here in the States. And In fact, he actually ordered this, special ordered these beans all the way from Indonesia. So I'm I'm glad they arrived just in time for this episode. Yeah, but I I feel like you're kind of burying the lead here. Like, don't you think? I I mean, the real story is that Tristan is about to drink what is essentially cat poop coffee. 
Like those beans have actually <laughs> passed through the digestive tract of a wild animal. Uh, that might be true. And I don't want to be that guy, but I do want to clarify here that these came from an Asian palm civet, which isn't technically a cat, but it, it doesn't make this any less gross. And honestly, as strange as this all sounds, gathering coffee beans from animal droppings has become this whole little kind of this subsection of the coffee industry. And I guess most of this has really developed over the past decade or so. And aside from civets, you can buy, you know, those that have passed through the bodies of everything from monkeys to elephants. And it really isn't just for novelty's sake. There, there's an idea behind this, and that's that these beans ferment naturally in an animal's stomach. And so because of that, it results in this smoother and, and less acidic cup of coffee than any other bean that's out there. That's pretty funny because I, I actually read a review that described the taste as, quote, petrified dinosaur droppings steeped in bathtub water, which just sounds <laughs> gross, but at least it's not acidic bathtub water. I don't know. I feel like we have to pause for just a second and check out Tristan's facial expression because I'm going to say based on that alone, it's probably a pretty fair description. But anyway, you know, today's show isn't just about Tristan's quest for this pricey cup of nasty coffee. And <laughs> I, I will say it's pretty telling that even such a niche variety of coffee can attract an audience. And that's because coffee in general has become such a ubiquitous drink. And today it's consumed in one form or another in just about every region on the planet. But it hasn't always been that way. And, and in fact, you know, when you compare it to the two most popular hot beverages in the world, that's, of course, you know, tea and hot chocolate, coffee is the youngest by far. And, you know, the history is only about a third as long as, you know, these others that we were talking about. So anyway, with that in mind, we thought we'd take a look at just how far coffee has come and, of course, why people all across the globe can't seem to get enough of it. You know, in college, I was in someone's car, and they braked really hard, and I ended up spilling coffee on my nice white shirt. So I had this immediate idea for an invention, which is clear coffee. Like, if you can make purple ketchup and crystal Pepsi, like, why not a clear coffee that doesn't stain your teeth or your shirts? And <laughs> I really thought it was ingenious. I'm sure I talked your ear off about it. Oh, yeah. And, I remember <laughs> you talking about this. And honestly, every single person I, I tried to tell about this was – Totally underwhelmed, like especially chemistry majors, they just were unenthusiastic. Yeah. It was a little like your pudding truck idea where a cement truck would come around like an ice cream truck and just dispense pudding into kids' hands. I mean, you have to admit though, Mango, that idea is still pretty genius. I know, and so is clear coffee, and I can't wait to get the Series A on both of those. But uh, <laughs> back to regular old brown coffee. So one thing we should get out of the way right up front is who likes coffee the most, or at least who drinks the most of it. And while the U.S. might seem like a safe bet, given the size of our coffee cups and, you know, the way we're never more than 30 feet from a Starbucks at any moment, according to the latest stats from the International Coffee Organization, the U.S. doesn't even crack the top 20 when it comes to per capita consumption. And that's actually saying something because the 2015 Gallup poll found that 64% of Americans drink at least one cup of coffee per day and 2.7 cups on average – and not only that, we also consume a little over, I believe it's nine pounds per capita every year. Wow. So nine pounds per person, and we're still not even in the top 20. I mean, I, I feel like these other countries must just be like mainlining coffee mm -hmm. all day. So how much could they possibly be drinking? Well, Finland tops the list with each person consuming about 26 and a half pounds of it every year. And the other Nordic countries aren't too far behind. In fact, Norway, Iceland, Denmark, the Netherlands, and Sweden all round out the top six. 
And that's with their citizens downing between 18 and 22 pounds per person per year. You know, I feel like this is the third or the fourth time that Scandinavian countries have dominated lists like this. You know, thinking back to some of our previous episodes, they have the happiest citizens. They eat the most chocolate. I think they have mm-hmm. the best prisons. And, and, and now they drink the most coffee. Like, what's going on here? Well, I, I mean, we are talking about some pretty chilly countries here. So they probably just need all the help they can getting through those long, dark winters. Wow. Well, you know, I feel like at least we're number one in something. And and that has to be the number of Starbucks, because I can't imagine any (laughs) other country has this beat on that, at least on a per capita basis. So I hate to break your heart here, because I actually thought the same thing. I I thought we had Starbucks domination as well. But Monaco edged us out a few years ago. Monaco, they currently have uh, 52 Starbucks branches per 1 million citizens compared to our 41. So, I mean, I guess we're number two in Starbucks. But (laughs) now that we've established how much everyone loves the stuff, well, why don't we talk about where coffee comes from and how we wound up drinking it in the first place? Well, I mean... It's a nice idea, but it's it's kind of easier said than done. You know, as we were starting to do our research on this, I just Googled origins of coffee and, of course, got something like 20 million results. And even just clicking around through a handful of these, I, I do get this feeling that there's not a lot of consensus on the history of coffee. And we've run into this before, whether we were looking up the origins of chocolate or cheese, it it really is tough to pin down where and when a staple food like this got its, you know, got its start. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. And the specifics are pretty hazy, but thankfully there are some broad points that most historians agree about. For instance, we know the coffee plant originated on the plateau of Ethiopia, and that's actually because it tends to spontaneously grow there like no place on Earth. And in fact, the region in question is even called Kaffa. You know, we're not sure if coffee took its name from the region or the other way around, but it's definitely linked somehow. You know, it was fun in reading about some of these origins and, uh, you know, you see these stories that go back to this old Ethiopian legend. And I think we may have talked about this one before, but it's this story about this goat shepherd named Kaldi or AKA the, you know, the happiest herder in happy Arabia. (laughs) And the reason for his happiness was that one day Kaldi noticed his goats had started dancing and jumping all over the place. And he noticed that they'd been eating the fruits and leaves of this certain bush. So naturally, Caldy gets curious and he goes over and decides to try some of the fruit for himself. And of course, he he feels this big burst of energy and immediately started sharing these magic beans with his friends and family. And this is something that supposedly happened around 850 CE. But again, nobody really can say for sure. So I honestly love how many discoveries are goat-based. Like, there's a legend about a blind goat walking through a thorn and curing his cataracts, and that's how we started cataract operations. I want to say there's like a goat herder who went to look for his missing goat, and that's how we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, we owe a lot to goats. And if you think about all the productivity that comes from, like, coffee, from um, Balzac to uh, Beethoven to the Velvet Revolution to musicians to politicians staying up late to craft laws, academics meeting deadlines, like, I mean, we kind of owe a lot to goats. Yeah, I mean, that that may be true, and that is pretty funny, but I, I feel like we were talking about coffee. Do, have we have we shifted to an episode on goats? Is yeah, this, I mean, is this I'm taking this in a total goat direction here. But <laughs> so, so, the, so the man on the other side of the soundproof glass now ramming his cataracts into a bunch of bushes, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil, right? So we're going in a different direction. All right, maybe, maybe we should get back to coffee. So, well, one thing we do know about coffee is that in its earliest days, it was chewed rather than sipped, just like the goats did it. And... 
you know, to make sense of that, it helps to know that coffee beans aren't actually beans at all. They're seeds which are found in the pits of the cherry-like fruits that grow on coffee plants. And while we coffee drinkers are much more interested in the seeds than the fruit, it was just the opposite for early Ethiopian tribes. For example, the Gala tribe would soften these coffee fruits in liquid, and then they blend them with this animal fat to make kind of like a chewable energy ball. It's amazing. Huh. All right, well, whatever the true origin, it definitely seems like the earliest folks to imbibe coffee were really doing it for the same reason we do today, and that's, of course, for that caffeine kick. I mean, there's always the chance that some desperate nomad was the first to eat a coffee cherry just to stay alive, but coffee's energizing effect is definitely why people kept coming back for more. And even the prophet Muhammad is said to have enjoyed the stimulation. There's this one account where um, Muhammad was feeling under the weather until he was visited by the archangel Gabriel, who gifted him this hot drink that was, quote, dark as the holy black stone of Mecca. So does that mean that Muhammad is supposed to have been the first person to actually drink coffee rather than eat it? I mean, possibly, but if not, there's this other contender, this uh, Persian doctor and philosopher who lived around the same time that Khaldi danced with his goats. His name was Razi, and he was the first person known to write about coffee. In his writings, he talked about this medicinal beverage he'd made from the bun fruit, which is the Ethiopian word for the coffee cherry. And there are also early writings that point to Yemen as the first place where coffee was cultivated, roasted, ground, and brewed as a liquid. And this would have been around the early 15th century. All right, so I know coffee plants aren't native to Yemen, so it's safe to assume they were imported from Ethiopia once word of their discovery had spread. But but do we know the story from there? Like, how did it get from Africa and this Arabian Peninsula all the way to Europe and North America and I guess just about everywhere? Well, a big part of coffee spread is thanks to those early adopters in Yemen. Many of them were Sufis who used the plant's roasted seeds and leaves to prepare a beverage that helped them stay awake through long nights of prayer. And then these holy men took their beans and all this brewing know-how all across the Islamic world through the 15th century. And then you get to the 16th century, like coffee begins its global journey. The Ottoman Empire rises to power and Muslims... They've got this religious ban on alcohol that starts to take hold, and soon coffee replaces wine throughout the region. And by the 1550s, the first known coffee house opens in Constantinople. But here's the thing, right? Like, the Ottomans knew they'd stumbled into something special during their conquests, which is why they tried to keep coffee this exclusive product of Yemen. And to do this, they really had to do something clever. They only allowed coffee beans to be exported if they'd been sterilized first. So while, like, Europeans started developing a taste for coffee during the 16th century, they really couldn't use the seeds to grow their own. But of course, the Ottoman Empire couldn't keep an eye on every single bean, so pretty soon Muslim pilgrims, as well as, like, Dutch and Venetian merchants, they were all smuggling these precious beans off the Arabian Peninsula. All right, so, you know, we're looking at the early 17th century, and and so obviously coffee had made its way into Europe, both legally and illegally, but... You know, not everybody took to it from the start. It was interesting reading about this and seeing that, you know, like even the Catholic Church was strongly opposed to coffee because of those stimulating effects that we were talking about. Apparently, Pope Clement VIII was urged by his councilmen to speak out against this drink, and they referred to it as the bitter invention of Satan. Which might have been a slight overreaction on their part, but what happened? Like, did the Pope actually take their advice? Well, he was never one to follow the crowd, so Pope Clement insisted on tasting the coffee for himself before he made a decision on what to do about it. And, you know, thankfully, he turned out to be a big fan. In fact, here's what he told his counsel. He said, the devil's drink is so delicious. We should cheat the devil by baptizing it. 
And so it was with that endorsement that Christian Europe decided to really indulge, and it quickly became the world's favorite pick-me-up. So I love that. And also, like, can you just baptize anything you have reservations about? Like, Led Zeppelin might have sold their soul to the devils to make Led Zeppelin 1 through 4, but I'm going <laughs> to baptize it. Like, it's just such a convenient solution. But, of course, it, it wasn't just the Catholic clergy who had all these qualms with coffee's growing role in society. Various rulers of the Ottoman Empire also tried outlying coffee and coffee houses over the years. But you know, the bans never really stuck for long. The worst of these crackdowns came during the rule of Murad IV between 1623 and 1640. Murad had already outlawed tobacco, and he was so committed to this ban. Like, sometimes he wore a disguise in public just so he could catch illegal smokers in the act. And <laughs> whenever the emperor did catch someone, like, sparking a cigarette, he'd reveal himself, and then he'd wail on the culprit with his royal mace. Good Lord. And so was he doing the same kind of thing with coffee as well? Yeah, I mean, it was horrible. And and Murad was pretty angry when he realized that many of his subjects had been meeting at coffee houses to discuss, I guess, what a buzzkill of a ruler he was. So, of course, the response was to outright ban coffee throughout the Ottoman Empire. And while getting caught with a cup of coffee carried the same punishment as tobacco as a first offense, the repeat offenders got much worse than a beating. Anyone caught drinking coffee a second time was actually sewn into a sack and chucked into a local waterway. Man, that just sounds like such a fun guy. What a mm-hmm. weird He's great thing, at parties. Though. You know, but what's weird is like this isn't even the most bizarre opposition coffee faced in its early years. And I feel like we need to talk about these extremes and especially those that some of the European officials went to while trying to stamp out coffee altogether. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're giving you the full scoop on the history of coffee. All right, Mango, so banning coffee in coffee shops is is pretty bad, but actually this was funny to read about. Did you know that in Sweden, they actually went even further and at one point actually outlawed cups and saucers too? What? (laughs) So this was the mid-18th century. It was during the rule of Adolf Frederick. And the king believed that coffee stimulated radical thinking and led his citizens to behave badly. So he imposes this heavy tax on coffee imports and even consumption. And he punished those who refused to pay the tax by confiscating their cups and saucers. And even that happened to fail. So they had to try to find another way to stop the coffee drinkers. So the king decided to ban coffee altogether. I mean, it's pretty great that you thought taking away cups would solve the problem, but obviously the Swedes are some of the biggest coffee drinkers in the world today. So I'm guessing the ban died with King Frederick? Well, not quite. I mean, his son tried to keep this going. His son was Gustav III. It just sounds like somebody who would want to ban coffee, right? And so he (laughs) ate all the Gustav. (laughs) That's right. I mean, he shared his father's (laughs) distaste for coffee and became convinced that it was incredibly unhealthy. In fact, the guy was so convinced that coffee was harmful that he conducted this long-running experiment to prove to his subjects that coffee was bad for him. So this is what he did. He found two convicted murderers, and they'd been sentenced to death, and he offered them this chance to live. And so he said, here's this experiment, and if you participate in this, we'll give you life sentences instead. And so the men agreed. And what happens next is they were given their marching orders. So one of them was required to drink three pots of coffee every day. The other one was asked to drink an equal amount of tea. Wait, that's it? Like, all they had to do was drink a bunch of tea and coffee, and they got to live? Yep. I feel like those are, like, the luckiest convicted murderers in history. 
Oh, definitely. I mean, Gustav was convinced that the coffee drinker would be dead in no time. I mean, this is how <laughs> dangerous he thought coffee was. But of course, Gustav was wrong. In fact, not only did both prisoners outlive the king, they even outlived the doctors that had been charged <laughs> with overseeing them. The tea drinker lived to be, I think it was like 83 years old, and the coffee drinker actually survived even longer than that. So that's amazing. And it actually reminds me of something similar that happened in Prussia around the same time. Apparently, the Prussian King Frederick was also convinced that coffee was a dangerous influence on his people. So not only did he ban coffee drinking, he even made it illegal to roast it. Which is <laughs> pretty ridiculous. I mean, how could you enforce <laughs> something like that? I mean, that's the funny part. Like, he actually sent royal sniffers into the streets to track down criminals just by the smell of the illicit brew. But again, all of this was ultimately in vain, and coffee culture continued to thrive across Europe. You know, and we're lucky that it did, because if you think about it, prior to this spread of coffee, most people in Europe were drinking alcohol pretty much all day long. And, you know, they'd have some beer with breakfast, some wine with lunch, a little bit of both in the evening. And actually, believe it or not, this was the healthiest way to go because most of the water that people had access to wasn't safe to drink. So you've got the fermentation process working in their favor, and that would kind of take care of the problem in the alcohol. But it also has a downside, and that's the fact that everybody was walking around drunk all the time, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, once that population switched from this more of a depressant to these stimulants like coffee and tea, suddenly well, there was this, this real explosion of new ideas and innovations as more and more people began to think clearly again. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard before how the spread and development of the Enlightenment owed a lot to coffee and also more specifically to coffee houses. Because, you know, just like today, coffee houses became these community gathering places where people could get together to share ideas or conduct business. Um, the first ones in Europe opened in the 17th century, with England getting its first in 1652. And about a decade later, London was up to about 80 different coffee houses. And 40 years after that, the city contained more than 500. Wow. I mean, the idea really did take off from the start. But, you know, just like in the Ottoman Empire, coffee houses also had their share of detractors in Europe. And some of them are pretty funny to read about. You know, for instance, in England, there was a group of women who banded together in 1674. And they wrote something called the Women's Petition Against Coffee, which was this manifesto that claimed that coffee robbed men of their masculinity. Huh. So the women referred to their husband's new pastime as, quote, the excessive use of that newfangled, abominable, heathenish liquor called coffee. <laughs> but it's been baptized. But uh, well, Right, right. What did they think was so bad about drinking coffee? Well, I mean, I guess the idea was that these once virile, hardworking men were now just sitting around in coffee shops all day, sipping coffee, talking like a bunch of Frenchmen, I guess. Oh, but, no. <laughs> you know, the, the men of England actually didn't take this affront to their manhood lying down, and instead they pinned their response to this, and it was called... Men's Answer to the Women's Petition Against Coffee. I love the titles of these Very things. Very descriptive. In that, here's what they claimed. That far from making men impotent, coffee actually made, quote, the erection more vigorous, adding a spiritual ascendancy to the sperm. What? I, I don't even know what that means. I, I'm I pretty sure I don't want to either. <laughs> it is really wild to hear how dead certain people were that, like, coffee must be bad for you somehow. I mean, it's kind of ironic considering how often we hear about the potential health benefits of drinking coffee today. Well, you know, and I actually did a little bit of digging on some of those health claims because there's something I've heard pretty often, too. And, you know, the most prevalent one is that drinking a certain number of cups of coffee will help you live longer. And surprisingly, the science actually seems to bear this out. 
Like I was looking at this study that was released last year by the European Society of Cardiology. So about a decade ago, these researchers got together about 20,000 volunteers in Spain, and they asked them about their food and coffee drinking habits, as well as their overall health history and lifestyles and all kinds of stuff sure. like that. And so they look at them 10 years later, and the researchers you know, were reconnecting with them and, and wanted to see how they were holding up. And what they found was that those participants who drank at least four cups of coffee a day were an astounding 64% more likely to avoid premature death than those who hardly drank coffee at all. Wow. But that's kind of not the weirdest part. The researchers also found that for each additional two cups of coffee that a participant drank each day, their risk of you know any causes of mortality was actually reduced by an extra 22%. So I think what you're saying here is if I drink like a dozen cups of coffee a day, I'll basically live forever? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that that's what <laughs> I'm saying, but, you know, you take away from it what you want. But, you know, the real explanation for why coffee can boost your longevity is pretty interesting. And I was looking at this study out of Stanford, and uh, what they found was that the caffeine in coffee actually combats the inflammatory processes that go along with aging and these age-related conditions like heart disease and Alzheimer's. So basically, the antioxidants in the coffee function like antibodies fighting off an illness. You know, they attack the harmful byproducts of our body's metabolic reactions, or like these are the ones that would otherwise trigger that inflammation. Yeah, well, I, I've actually got good news for any of our non-human listeners out there, because apparently <laughs> coffee's health benefits extend to the animal kingdom as well. And we know this because the oldest cat ever on record was actually an avid coffee drinker. Her name was Cream Puff, and she lived to be a whopping 38 years old and three days as well. Um, and this was actually thanks to her daily morning coffee, not to mention the bacon, eggs, and broccoli she also ate. It doesn't sound like a bad diet, and, and obviously that's super impressive, but how do you know it was the coffee that kept her around so long? Like, couldn't have this just been a coincidence? Yeah, of course, anything's possible, but it is worth keeping in mind that the previous record holder before Cream Puff was a 34-year-old cat named Grandpa Rex Allen. And not <laughs> only did Gramps have the same owner as Cream Puff, he was fed the exact same diet, too, including that all-important daily dose of java. Man, I, that is pretty convincing, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. But there's still one health aspect of coffee I'm not so sure about, and that's whether or not it should be considered cancerous. And scientists seem to go back and forth from this from time to time. But if we're going to commit four or more cups of coffee a day, I feel like it'd be pretty nice to have a definitive answer on this. Yeah, well, you're in luck because the World Health Organization actually made a statement about this not too long ago, and their conclusion was sort of surprising. Oh, really? So what did they say? Well, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But first, let's take another quick break. Okay, Will, so I know you were curious about whether or not coffee causes cancer. And honestly, the answer is kind of a mixed bag. So first, the good news. There's no conclusive evidence that drinking coffee leads to cancer. In the past, the International Agency for Research on Cancer had actually labeled the coffee as, quote, possible carcinogen, which landed in the same category as chloroform and lots of other harmful substances. I mean, it's a little weird to think of coffee in the same class as chloroform. I feel like that's kind of extreme, but, but you're mm -hmm. saying that warning's been reversed at this point. Yeah, so the IARC changed its mind after reviewing over a 1,000 scientific studies in humans and animals, none of which provided enough evidence to support the, quote, possibly carcinogenic label. 
Okay, so that feels like a win for all of us. So why mm-hmm. did you say it was a mixed bag? Yeah, I mean, that's because of the bad news, which is that the agency also concluded that basically all very hot drinks are most likely carcinogenic. Apparently, there's now enough evidence to suggest that drinking anything 149 degrees Fahrenheit or hotter probably causes cancer of the esophagus. And since the average cup of joe is typically served between 160 and 185 degrees Fahrenheit, that's not so great news for coffee drinkers. Yeah, or I mean, if you think about it, tea or hot water drinkers Mm -hmm. for that matter. But um, all right, well, so the good news is, is that coffee itself probably isn't cancerous, but very hot coffee might be. And I don't know, I feel like if that's not a ringing endorsement for cold brew, I'm really not sure what would be. Yeah, I know. And I'm a huge cold brew drinker. But on a lighter note, when I was looking into the cancer angle, I also came across this bizarre thought experiment in Scientific American. And it's actually just too weird not to share. So you know how on the show Friends, the cast is always drinking those enormous mugs of coffee at Central Perk? Oh, yeah, definitely. They were huge. Yeah, so this writer named Kyle Hill remembers, too, and he actually crunched the numbers to see just how many people you could kill with all the caffeine the cast of Friends consumed over the course of the show's 10 seasons. And it turns out that assuming each episode represents a week of time on average, the six friends downed an incredible 3,100 gallons of coffee, which (laughs) is enough to send over 1,900 people to the hospital. I like how this is uh, the lighter note that you wanted to talk about. I mean, I, I guess it at least raises the interesting question of how much caffeine is actually safe to consume. So did, did you get a sense of that apart from this ridiculous hypothetical? Yeah, so some scientists say it's about 10 grams of caffeine. That's enough to do most people in. But there are also reports of people dying from as little as 480 milligrams. Honestly, there isn't like a universal overdose amount for caffeine because the number varies from person to person. And that's because of all sorts of factors from, you know, your heart health to your body weight. Yeah, that's what I was going to say with like heart health, especially because everybody's is so different. It seems like issues could be triggered with even a little Mm -hmm. bit of caffeine for some people. But, But what about that 10 grams you mentioned? How easy is it to ingest that much? So not very, thankfully. Like, that would be the equivalent of about 50 shots of five-hour energy. And since there's only about 150 milligrams of caffeine in an eight-ounce cup of coffee, you'd actually need to drink a full 70 cups to get to 10 grams. And if that wasn't unlikely enough, like, you'd actually have to drink all those cups at the same time because caffeine's effects (laughs) lessen over time. So there's some good news. It's effectively impossible to OD on caffeine from coffee. There's just no way you could fit that much liquid in your stomach. Not not to mention that most people's coffee breaks aren't long enough to brew 70 cups of coffee, much less drink them. Well, that's true. But, you know, speaking of coffee breaks, and this is a, a, a total detour from what we were talking about, did you ever wonder how that practice got its start? Yeah, like, I used to know the answer at one point. I, I feel like it has to do with some sort of ad campaign or something. Well, yes and no. And there, there are actually some conflicting reports about this, much like the origins of coffee itself. But... According to City Lab, coffee breaks are a product of early 20th century unions. So factories finally standardized the workday. They came to be eight hours a day. But they also added these rest breaks into the schedule. And it was during these breaks that workers would drink coffee to get that quick jolt of energy so they could finish the workday. And, of course, entrepreneurs took notice of this practice. And pretty soon you started seeing these street carts and coffee counters and vending machines just popping up all over the place. So, I mean, it makes complete sense to me that coffee breaks would be this American invention, you know, American workers coming up with it. But you said some folks don't actually buy into that theory? 
Well, in particular, these would be the citizens of Stoughton, Wisconsin. They don't buy into it at <laughs> all. So on the contrary, this tiny town insists that it was actually the area's population of Norwegian female immigrants who invented coffee breaks. And this would have been back in the late 19th century. Huh. So apparently there was a tobacco warehouse in the town that hired these Norwegian women to help strip the plants. And since the warehouse wasn't too far from their homes, the women would routinely pop in to check on their kids or get dinner started and, of course, grab a cup of coffee before heading back to work. And even though outsiders continue to challenge Stoughton's claim to fame, the town itself has no doubt about this local lore being true. In fact, the residents still honor the town's history each year by holding this official coffee break festival. (laughs) And they bill it as, quote, the weekend when everyone is Norwegian. (laughs) Well, that's pretty sweet. But Wait, so I I was thinking coffee breaks had something to do with marketing and ad campaigns. Did did I just make that up? No, so that's another legit option. See, you, if you look back to the early 1900s, you had multiple companies beginning to offer coffee breaks as these official job perks for their employees. Like, for instance, the company that makes Barca loungers agreed to give workers short breaks during the morning and the afternoon. And then they could heat up a cup of coffee on like a kerosene-fueled hot plate While all kinds of companies lay claim to having offered the first official coffee break, the first group to actually coin the phrase coffee break didn't come along until 1952. And that's the year that Pan American Coffee Bureau launched an ad campaign encouraging the public to, quote, give yourself a coffee break and get what coffee gives you. (laughs) That's just great ad coffee right there. But (laughs) I always think it's so fun to find out where the lingo surrounding words and phrases comes from. And did you know the phrase cup of joe might have come from a U.S. naval secretary named Josephus Daniels? No. He apparently banned all drinks stronger than coffee from being served in the mess halls. So the officer started applying his name to the only stiff drink he approved of. And, of course, there's also a good chance the phrase goes back even further. Like, some people say Joe is a a shortening of the word Jamoke, which I guess is a hybrid of Java and Moco, you know, two regions known for coffee cultivation. Hmm. I'd actually never heard that. Well, since we're on that subject, the bureau that gave us coffee breaks was also behind another famous coffee phrase, and that's the phrase one for the road. You know, that phrase is typically used now to mean like one more drink before I go. Mm -hmm. It was originally more literally taken. So remember, the country's interstate highway system was brand new at this time. So that idea of one more for the road, it, it was really intended as a safety measure to make sure Americans were staying awake or not falling asleep while they were at the wheel during these long-distance drives. Huh, that's awesome. But uh, speaking of one more for the road, it looks like Tristan's still got a full pot of Civic coffee over there if you're feeling thirsty before the fact off. You know, I think it was going to be a, uh, a hard pass for me, Mango, <laughs> but, but I am ready for the fact off. So in reading up for this episode, I was looking at this New York Times article from a couple years back that was about the fact that a surprising number of flights are delayed each year because of broken coffee makers. Huh. So as the article explained, these are incredibly expensive coffee pots. I mean, we're talking $10,000 a piece, sometimes more. And that's because they have so many safety features like circuit breakers and special wiring. What that also means is that there are more things that could possibly go wrong. And so if a coffee maker isn't working... They then have to do this full investigation to make sure it's not because of bad wiring on the plane or anything like that. But, you know, people can't live without their coffee, so we just deal with this. That's amazing. 
So here's a fact about the role coffee played in trying to get the Brazilian Olympic delegation to the 1932 Games, and this was in Los Angeles. It was a super expensive trip, so they decided to load up 50,000 bags of Brazilian coffee on the ship they were traveling on, and the plan was to sell as much of it as possible along the way to pay for the trip. But unfortunately, they didn't sell quite as much as they'd hoped, and when they made it to the port in L.A., they couldn't afford to pay the $1 per person charge. So only about half the team could get off the boat. And in fact, there were still 15 athletes who were never able to get off the ship in the States. So during the entire voyage, these 15 people never got off the ship. Yeah, it's terrible. Well, I'd been wondering if there was an actual Maxwell House. I don't know why I was wondering this, but you know, it, it turns out that there was. So Maxwell House Hotel opened up just a few years after the Civil War, and, and it was the fanciest hotel in Nashville. Apparently, Teddy Roosevelt liked visiting, as well as several of the Vanderbilts. And the coffee actually got its name from this hotel. Now, I was looking into the history of it, and sadly, the hotel burned down in 1961. So it's no longer there, but there was actually a Maxwell House. That's crazy that it was there till the 60s, though. That's pretty mm-hmm. impressive. So it turns out Beethoven was a big fan of coffee, but he was also incredibly particular about how it was to be made. In fact, he only wanted his cups made with precisely 60 beans. And I don't know why I find that surprising, but that's actually how I'll be ordering my coffee from now on. Like, I like a venti Beethoven style. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think I'd actually seen this fact before, but did you know that the first ever webcam was used at Cambridge, but it was actually set up to do something much less academic than you might imagine? It was used to give the researchers there the ability to monitor the coffee in the break room without having to get up to check it. <laughs> well, I love that that became like an internet star and everyone was checking the Cambridge coffee. But That's right. You know, we, we opened talking about cat poop coffee. Well, I, I figured maybe we should close the show with an equally gross, but Different kind of bean processing, that's vanilla-flavored monkey saliva coffee. And this <laughs> comes from Taiwan. Uh, apparently, these monkeys were becoming a big problem for coffee farms because they were, like, trying to get their buzz and destroying the crops. They would just suck on the coffee cherries and then spit out the pits. But one thing a farmer noticed was that these beans the monkeys had spit out had a unique vanilla flavor to them. So he just decided to team up with the monkeys, and now we have an even more rare coffee for Tristan to love. That is pretty wild. And I, I I have to respect, Mango, the fact that you were bold enough to start off the episode talking about poop coffee and end the episode talking about monkey spit coffee. So <laughs> those might both be gross, but I respect that. So I'm going to have to give you today's trophy. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. I'm sure we left out some great facts about coffee, so don't hesitate to let us know the ones that we missed. We always love to hear from you. You can email us part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com. Or call us on our 24-7 Fact Hotline. That's 844-PT-GENIUS. You can always hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? 